watching ourselves kind of played out through these people called the Israelites and their journey through uh, the wilderness and through the desert. So last week we were we found ourselves at the waters of Marah in chapter 15. And after a long journey, they were thirsty for some water that could satisfy them. And they come to the waters of Marah and the waters are bitter. They can't drink the water. It's not what they've been longing for. And God is basically testing them in that moment to see if they are hoping in the water or if they're hoping in God. So that's really the great question for us, is if you are hoping in the things that God can give you, or are you hoping in the God who gives them to you? Because if you hope in your stuff, you're going to have to keep getting more stuff because your stuff's going to get old, it's going to fall out of style, it's going to break, relationships will end, people will pass on, but the Lord so we see here in Exodus chapter 16 that God is continuing to test his people. And uh, if you've got your Bibles, go to Exodus chapter 16. And before we begin, let me just pray for us. I know we just prayed, but I think there's just something really powerful. We're just asking God to take what he's about to say through his word and speak to us. And um, the question for you tonight, and for me, is where are we on this journey? Where are you in the midst of all of this? Because I think if we're all honest tonight, we're going to see ourselves in this text. I've seen myself a lot as I've studied this this week. And even today, as I just look back over it, I see myself here. So let's ask God to help us see ourselves here, not see somebody else. Because the typical response when we hear preaching is to go, oh, that's for somebody else. That's for you. That's for me. chapter 16, we'll start reading in verse 1, and we're going to see, kind of like I said last week, there's an external truth or journey that's taking place that's really kind of obvious and on the surface, and then there's an, an internal truth or journey that's taking place, and it's more under the surface, it's more heart level, and we see that over and over again as we go throughout the wandering here in Exodus. So let's read in verse 1, it says this, so they set out from Elam, which was the place, if you go up the verses before chapter 16, know that God brought them to a place called Elam, which after they needed sweet water, um, the waters of Marah were bitter. He brought them to this place called Elam. Elam had 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and there they encamped with water. Now, here's what I think is really interesting before we jump into this next verse. Is God is so good, and He is so gracious, that He will very often bring us to an Elam before He sends us into the desert. And He'll bring us 
spiritually, emotionally, physically sometimes to a place that's a deep with refreshment and a place that is just this place, this moment, maybe a season of our lives where things are just really good. And if that's true about you tonight, then praise the Lord. If you're in that season, then praise God. Just know this. Elam doesn't last forever. Because in verse 1 chapter 16, they head into the desert. So let's, let's look at verse 1 here. They set out from Elam. This is a place of great refreshment. It's kind of utopia, so to speak. And they got palm trees there and springs there. And the Israelites were loving it. It's like they were at a resort. And they leave that place. And all the congregation of the people of Israel came to the wilderness of sin. Now, sin, we, we hear the word sin and we think sin. Like, all have sinned. But this really doesn't have anything to do with that concept. It's just the word. It's called the wilderness of sin. Which is between Elam and Sinai. On the 15th day of the second month after they had departed from the land of Egypt. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. Now this is a massive theme. In fact, I don't think I said this last week. But for all the instances in the Bible where it talks about grumbling, the majority of them happen, maybe with the exception of about two or three, any instance in the Bible where it actually uses the word grumbling is in chapters 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19 of Exodus. These are some grumbling people. So they're grumbling again. God just brought them from Elam, from this great place of refreshment, this season of just rest and refreshment. And now they're grumbling again to Moses and to Aaron, which is in essence grumbling to God. And here's what they say. The people of Israel said to him, verse 3. With that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So they're grumbling. And then here's what we see. They start talking about Egypt with affectionate terms. This place that they cried out to God for 300, 400 years. God, deliver us from this place. Now they're in the desert and they're talking about it with affection. So here's what we're going to see today. We're going to see three really simple words. They all start with pain. That doesn't happen often first is this. We're going to see the process of redemption. We're going to see the provision of redemption. We're going to see the patience of God in this redemption. And it's all here in chapter 16. This, this chapter is an amazing chapter because it's kind of like a microcosm of just the experience of the believer and kind of what we go through post-salvation. So here's, here's kind of beginning this, the process of redemption. Notice this in verse 1 and 2 and 3. He brings them into the wilderness. This is a really interesting thing to me. It's, it's an encouraging thing and a discouraging thing all at the same time. God led them from the happy place of Elam to the really barren place of the wilderness of sin. But, but notice they didn't take a wrong turn. They're moments in the wilderness were not because they were disobedient, in essence. It's because they actually followed the pillar of fire and smoke, and it led them there. He led them there as a process. So so this, this whole redemption thing is about the process of the wilderness, about God leading us to some places that aren't Elam. And he leads them into the wilderness, and he leads them there to do something. This is what it says here. It says in verse 4, if you go down to verse 4, look at this. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and 
gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether they will walk in my law or not. So what is the purpose of the wilderness? The purpose of the wilderness is this testing, this process of redemption. And what do I mean by that? Here's what I mean by that. That they had been objectively delivered from sin. Like they were out of Egypt, right? But Egypt wasn't out of them. So here's kind of the hard realities for us. It's though we don't want to embrace this thought all the time, is if you find yourself in a wilderness, a season of life where things are really difficult, maybe it's financially, maybe it's relationships, maybe it's just stuff going on in your life, and you just sense, I'm in this kind of wilderness moment of my life, it's probably because God has led you there to do something in you. We don't want to embrace that. So we blame it on other people things. The reality is, Diana stood up here last week and talked about losing her husband. God has led her to this place. Now, I didn't say God did this, but I said God led her to this place. So, whether you're in an Elam tonight or you're in a wilderness, know this, God has led you to this place. And He'll lead you to some different places along your journey. But the reality is this, God's led them there, and here's what we see in the midst of this wilderness. He's bringing something to the surface for them, and it's this. We hear the language of addiction. Notice what it says. Look look back at verse verse 3. With that, we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. When we sat by meat pots and ate bread to the full, for you brought us out into the wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. So here's what you hear. You hear this language of addiction. Now they're talking about Egypt with great affection. And some of you think about your past sin or your past life, maybe, or some thought or something, that relationship, um, that job, whatever it was that you've kind of been redeemed out of that was really bad, your Egypt, so to speak. If we're not really careful, we begin to think of it with great affection. Like, you know, I know that relationship wasn't pure and holy and honoring to God. I know that we were doing things that not honoring to God in that relationship with man. In the middle of the relationship, you cried out to God to deliver you because you knew it was wrong. You couldn't deliver yourself. Or, or we're here and we, we want to slip back into a sense of materialism. We want to slip back into a sense of, I get my identity from what people say about me. So I say this, I've said this before, but this is really kind of the crux of what God is doing in this process of redemption. Why does he bring them into the wilderness? Why does he bring us into seasons of wilderness? Because it's easy to get the people out of slavery. It's hard to get the slavery out of people. Because they long for Egypt. You long for Egypt. You long for that thing which at one point you cried out for. So here's kind of how it sets up. It's a process, right? Because objectively, as Christians, we know that when we get saved, we get justified. So it's a, it's a, it's something that happens in a moment. It happens, and God goes, "You're just as if you've never sinned because of Christ. You're justified." So that's an objective thing. But then I've got to spend the rest of my days working that out in reality for my life. What does that mean for how I talk to people? What does that mean for how I treat my wife? What does that mean for how I? work as an employee? What does that mean for the everyday? So let's just kind of go real life for a minute. Say you're somebody who grew up and your parents never loved on you, 
never showed you affection. You always felt like you had to earn their favor or their love or their affection. Maybe some of you are in that boat tonight. You grew up like that. In many ways, I had a dad growing up who, he got saved when I was in college, but for the longest time, the only thing I really ever heard from my dad was the things I had done wrong. So I grew up in great fear of my dad. And I didn't even realize this, but when I got in college, I realized I've got a really kind of messed up view of God because of how my dad was. So, say you're that person. You grow up constantly having to earn favor from people, your parents especially. So you, you go around and you become a people-pleasing addict because you're constantly having, you, you get your identity from what people say to you. And so you perform so people will say things to you and you want the applause of people and you build your life on the applause of people and you may be really good at it. And say one day you come across the gospel and it says you're not accepted because of what frees you from this feeling where you have to please everybody and, and beg people for compliments so that you can have an identity. And Christ says, no, that, that, that is over. I have died for you. I want to give you an identity. Here you go. And so that person, whoever that is, maybe that's you tonight, that person hears the gospel. They believe the gospel. They get saved. They're set free objectively. Then they go to work the next day. Do you think they go to work the next day and all of a sudden they're free from wondering what people think about them? Do you think they go to work the next day and all of a sudden it doesn't matter what that guy in the next cubicle said about me or it doesn't matter what my girlfriend thinks. All of a sudden I'm free of all that. Is that true? No, it's not true. You know that's a reality tonight for you because you struggle with some of that same stuff. Or the guy. The guy who's addicted to pornography understands the depth of the gospel and that that's idolatry. So he begins to lay that down. But the reality is, it's not like he wakes up the next day and goes, I have no desire for this anymore. No, it's a battle. It's a process of sanctification. And so what God is doing is he's taking what's objectively true about them and making it true subjectively for them. He wants to work some things into them and he wants to work some things out of them, but we don't really like this kind of process because we're Western and we're American, right? So we don't want to be in the wilderness. We like to hang out in Elam. And if he could just do in us in Elam what he can do in the wilderness, that'd be so much better, wouldn't it? That's what we want. Because we're American. We like tech, technology and we like now, not later. So we say, we pray crazy things to God, like, God, just take this desire away from me right now. I'll just lay down and you zap me, and then I'll get up and I can go about my way. It doesn't work like that. It works in the process of us walking in the wilderness with Him. So He brings them into the wilderness, and He's going to teach them some things. And here's the interesting thing. Paul says this uh, in Romans. He says that our suffering, Romans 8, he says our suffering is not to be compared to the glory that we will see the glory that will be revealed to us. The word for glory there is the word kabod. And here's what it actually means. It has with it a connotation of glory, but also weight. Weight. So there's this sense of in the wilderness, there's suffering and there's process and there's trial. But what God is doing is he's bringing glory, not to us in the sense that we are glorified, but in the sense of there's weightiness to us. 
So that's what Paul says. If you're suffering, praise God for that. Not only are you going to experience heaven someday, and that just blows all this away, but you're going to become a weighty person in the sense of you're not shallow. Some of the most shallow people I've met are people who've had life set up for them. That could be some of you in here. I'm not saying you're shallow, but for some of you, you lack some depth because you just haven't walked through any wilderness. You haven't walked through anything that's stretched you where God's been and trying to process some things. And you, you will do that. But, but people that I, I worked at American Eagle um, when I was in the seminary, and I met some of the most shallow people I've ever met. Just saying, I mean, if you work at American Eagle, I'm not saying you're shallow. I'm just saying, at the store in Raleigh, North Carolina, I met some really shallow people. So, Here's what these people are all about. For a lot of them, their life had been set up for them. Um, they worked that job so they could buy clothes. That's what it was for. Uh, there were people there that were just all about themselves. And on the weekend, they would party. And their life was just like a big party. And they were some of the most shallow people I'd ever met. Because they hadn't walked through anything that was painful. It would bring weight to their life. And so shallow people usually are really bad at relationships because they can't relate to anybody. They usually freak out when things go wrong. Here's what God's trying to do in the Israelites, and He's trying to do this in us. He wants to bring some weightiness. He wants to bring sanctification. He wants to bring purification. He's going to do it through this process of wilderness. But that kind of begs the question, okay? Because especially because we heard our friend Diana stand up last week and talk about the loss of her husband. So the question is, if God brought her to that wilderness, then does it mean, because that is such a personal process of time. For some of you, God's using great deep pain, the loss of things, the loss of a job, the loss of a friend, the loss of a parent maybe. He's bringing great pain into your life and he's working through that. So that begs the question, is God the author of evil? Is God causing evil so that this will happen in my life? I would say, well, no. So how do you know that? Well, Look at how God made everything. Here's one thing that's really, really interesting. God made the heavens, He made the earth, He made the oceans, He made all this stuff. One thing we don't see in the Genesis account is God making a desert. He never says, I want to make a place that's barren and void of life and everything just dries up and dies there. Now, He made things that were living and spawned off life and animals that had more life and more life and more life. So what does that tell me about God? It tells me that in His plan originally and in His plan to come, death, disease, loss, pain, sin was not a part of that. How do I know that? Because you find Jesus in the Gospel of John standing at the tomb of Lazarus weeping. He's not just weeping because He lost His friend. He is weeping for that reason, but He's weeping because this is not how it's supposed to end. When you go to a funeral, weep with those who weep. But this is not how it's supposed to end. It was never supposed to end in funerals. So it's the sting of death that Jesus has swallowed up. For a time being, we feel the sting. But it wasn't how it was supposed to be. And so what we can know is this. If you want to just get really encouraged tonight, go read Isaiah 35. And he talks about how he will bring streams to the desert. That's really good news. And so, he brings us to the desert to kind of do work on us. And so, they're in the desert. Look back at chapter 16. And they're grumbling. So, verse 4 tells us this. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, 
I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you. I can't imagine that conversation with Moses. That would have been great. You're going to rain bread from heaven. Okay. And the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the people of Israel, At evening you shall know that the Lord... That it was the Lord that brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord. Now here's what's interesting, verse 7. Two things we just heard. To know the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. To see the glory of the Lord. The manna is not about a full tummy. It's about knowing the Lord and knowing the glory, the kabod, the weight of the Lord. So he comes back here and he says, you're going to know the Lord. Verse 8. Moses said to them, when the Lord gives you in the evening meat to eat and in the morning bread to the full, because the Lord has heard your grumbling that you grumble against him. What are we? Your grumbling is not against us, but against the Lord. So he wants to make it very clear with him. You're not arguing with me. You're arguing with the Lord, that pillar of fire and smoke. You go, you go fight with him. I'm just a mediator. Verse 9. Then Moses said to Aaron, Say to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, Come near before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. And as soon as Aaron spoke to the whole congregation of the people of Israel, they looked toward the wilderness, and behold, the glory of the Lord appeared in the cloud. And the Lord said to Moses, I've heard the grumbling of the people of Israel. Say to them, At twilight you shall eat meat, in the morning you shall be filled with bread. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God. In the evening quail came up and covered the camp. In the morning dew laid around the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing fine as frost on the ground. So when the people of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather of it, each one of you, as much as you can eat. You shall each take an omer according to the number of persons that each of you has in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. But when they measured with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. And Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over till the morning. But they did not listen to Moses. Some left part of it till the morning, and it bred worms and it stank. And Moses was angry with them. Morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. But when the sun grew hot, it melted. Verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. And when all the leaders of the congregations came to Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, boil what you will boil, and all that's left over lay aside to be kept to the Lord. So they laid it aside for the Lord. So God says to them in this whole kind of big, massive text, I'm going to give you bread. The focus of the text is really on the manna. He does send quail. It says in verse 13, the quail come and they cover up the camp. But the focus of the text is really on the manna. And he says that they go out day by day and gather. They were instructions for this manna. And so here's what God does. The provision we kind of see of the manna is this. is that God is giving them manna. But this manna represents something more than just bread. It's not just about them filling their stomachs. So hold your place in Exodus 16 and go over to Deuteronomy 8. And Deuteronomy is an amazing book because in so many ways Deuteronomy explains what's happening in Exodus. And so Deuteronomy 8, verse 2. And it's difficult to understand Exodus without understanding this passage right here. Deuteronomy 8, 2. You shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know 
what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commands or not. And he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna, the manna from Exodus 16, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live on bread alone. Well, wait a minute. Time out. He fed them manna so that they could know that man doesn't live on bread alone? I typically don't give my children that which I don't want them to have. So, like, if I say to my kids, uh, yeah, chocolate's not good for you. Here's chocolate. That's not a good rule in our house, okay? My wife gets angry with me when I do that to my kids. So, why would God give them something and then turn around and go, by the way, you don't live on this alone? Because the manna is about something bigger than full stomachs. Look at what it says. You did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So manna in Exodus 16, go back to Exodus 16. Manna is about something deeper than their tummies being full. Because this is a miracle. Like they wake up in Exodus 16, and it says that there's in uh, verse 14, the dew goes away. And there's this fine, flake-like thing, frost on the ground. And the people of Israel look at one another. Listen, I just get... Does anybody ever, like, read the Bible and you just kind of see it happening? Okay? Like that. I read the Bible and I just play it out of my head. And I just get this image of Israelites waking up in the morning. And they're looking at this stuff on the ground. It's like, what is it? Can we eat it? Moses is like, eat it. It's like, but we've never seen it before. I just have in my mind that there's just Chick-fil-A sandwiches on the ground everywhere. And they're going, what is it? And, and Moses is like, it's quail and manna. Eat it. It's going to be good. And years years from now, people are going to pay good money for this. Eat it now. So they don't know what it is. This is a miracle. Why is it a miracle? It's a miracle because they've never seen it. They didn't make it. And it appears every day. And on the sixth day, more appears so they don't have to go work on the seventh day. This is a miracle. So it begs the question. If it's just about a full stomach, why didn't God just make the manna appear in their stomach in the morning and it's done? Lazy Americans, we would love that. I don't even have to get up and get the manna. It's like in my belly in the morning, okay? Everybody full? Everybody got their manna? We're good to go. But that's not what's ha- that's not why God is doing this. Because when they got delivered from Egypt, for the most part, their deliverance from Egypt was passive. God brings them to the Red Sea. They don't know what to do. God parts the Red Sea. So they walk through. They don't really do anything. They just kind of walk through. They end up on the other side. And they're like, well, by the way, we're free now. And you did nothing to earn that. And you did nothing to deserve it. It was a passive moment. But now here's what God is going to do. To sustain them through this wilderness, this process of redemption, he's going, here's food for you. And by the way, you got to get your lazy self up every morning and go out and get it. Because it's about the relationship. It's not about the see that in salvation. God works fully to save us and to deliver us to heaven, pure church. So the work of salvation is God's work. Justification is God's work. But here's what we kind of see. Grudem talks about this in the systematic theology text, is that justification is the work of God. And so is sanctification. But sanctification, this process of me becoming more like Jesus, is is in some sense me also partnering with God, not to make myself more holy, but I can't sit around in the bed all day or play video games all day and never read my Bible and expect to be conformed more to the image of Christ. That's dumb. So here's what 
Mo- Moses is saying, here's what God is doing to the Israelites. He's saying, there's nourishment for you, but you have to place someone in the mold. Get up, gather. So the nourishment, we kind of see it um, in really kind of four different ways. It gives them strength, and it's spiritual strength that God wants us to see here. So they're going to be on the screen. The first is this. We see this in Deuteronomy. The manna is what I would call thoughtful strength. Jesus said it when he was in the wilderness. Man does not live on bread alone. Moses said it in Deuteronomy 8. So this is thoughtful strength. What does that mean? Well, when you're in the wilderness, if some of you are in the wilderness right now, manna is good for you. Why? The manna was meant to be something bigger. It's man doesn't live on bread alone. So in a spiritual wilderness, manna points to the strength that is every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So do you find yourself in a wilderness tonight? Do you find yourself in a really dry place, spiritually? Man? Have you come out of a dry place? Do you, do you foresee a dry place you're heading into? Here's what you have to know. That manna is here for you by God because it is every word that comes out of the mouth of God. People come to me a lot for counseling. I tell you, my job mostly consists of a couple things. Uh, I study so I can teach the Bible, and I sit with people and listen to what's going on. Some way I pray that God will give you. That's about 85% of my email. The rest of it is emails and phone calls. So if I don't get to your email right away, it's probably because I'm doing 85%. Just bear with me. But when people come to me and they tell me about the wilderness that they're in, here's the typical kind of response, and here's kind of how it goes sometimes. I'll ask them about what God is showing them in the Bible, and usually it's crickets. Even people that I would think would be in the Word, it's just like, well, I haven't really been in the Word that much. But this is manna for you in your wilderness. This is nourishment for you. Moses is going, it's not about the manna. It's about every word that comes out of the mouth of God. So it's thoughtful strength. What do I mean by that? Here's what I mean. Take this thing called the Bible in the midst of your wilderness. You, you have to get it, so to speak. Gather. What did Moses say? He said, go gather. Go gather. So how often do you get up in the morning and you go gather? Some of you are drowning in the wilderness right now. You're dying in the wilderness. You don't drown in the wilderness. And you, you haven't gathered. And he says, then go gather manna. And Moses essentially is saying, every word that comes out of the mouth of God, you have it sitting in your lap. you got to get up in the morning and go gather it. And then you got to chew on it a little bit. Right? He's basically saying to them, this manna is every word that comes out of the mouth of God, and it's more than just cognitive. Like, so, you guys are so biblically literate, it's, it's not even funny. Like, it's not even funny how biblically literate you guys, you could have theological discussions, some of you, that would put people to shame. You are a very biblically illiterate, very biblically literate group. I travel, I speak at other college ministries, I speak at youth groups, I speak at other churches, I would put you guys toe to toe with some of Wilderness, whether it's a wilderness, I lost a loved one, struggling with sin, 
what is it you chew on, right? So for us, when we were kind of walking through this time with Jane and trying to get her home, and uh, two months turned into seven months, we found ourselves in a massive kind of wilderness. And we didn't really know what was going to happen with that. And I just remember my wife had verses she would go to, and, and I had some passages that I would go to. And one of the passages that I went to is the story of Jehoshaphat in Chronicles. He pretty much had the armies coming against him. He just looked up to God and said, you're sovereign, you're all powerful, you're the king of the nations. And in this phrase, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed on you. I just hung on to that verse and I chewed on it every day. It became my prayer in those seven months from June to basically So I would take, and this became manna to me. For some of you, it's a concept, but it's not manna. Because you don't go gather. You, you don't go gather, you just kind of know, and then you throw it out to people so that you can look good or so you can win a debate. But that's not what he's talking about. He didn't say go get manna so you can win a debate with your buddy. He's saying go get manna so you can live. This is thoughtful strength. Now, the thing that I love about our faith is thoughtful looking faith. So guys that I was friends with, I remember this conversation vividly at the American Eagle, he was a believer, he was an atheist, uh, he basically believes that we were kind of all just matter, and it was all kind of random, and there was really no point in society, and we just kind of all came together, and he was actually one of my managers, his name was Matt, and he was kind of one of those guys that talked a lot, but when you start digging on his, his philosophy, you could tell he didn't really have a leg to stand on too much. So we would have, we would close together, and I remember these because he found out I was in seminary and he found out I was an ethics major, and he would just ask me all these questions. We got this discussion one night, and I was like, "So Matt, you think you think that we are just matter? You and I are just matter that just somehow come together? So we're just really complex germs, basically." Like, yeah, yes. I believe that. Yeah, I believe that. And I was like, "Okay, so if that's true, then why are you so passionate about?" Um, or against people who are racist. This guy was always talking about just good standards for racist and treat, treat equality. I was like, why are you so passionate about equality and racist? Because if we're all just matter, it doesn't really matter. He was like, well, what do you mean? I was like, well, if we're all just an accident, we're just complex germs, and it doesn't really matter. There's really no law that says, I can't be better than you. Maybe I'm a better piece of matter than that guy. So it doesn't really matter. He was like, Okay, see what you're saying? And then I was like, and if that's true, then the reality is charity and violence are all the same. It doesn't really matter. See, when some people begin to think out the worldview, it actually causes them despair. So we had these conversations for months about this. He said this to me. He said, uh, I said, do you have friends that believe this craziness? He said, yeah, most of my friends can't believe this. Is that hard for you? Because when you start to think it out, it doesn't really help you that much. And he said, well, I, it's hard for me because most of my friends just don't think it out to a logical conclusion. He's like, but I have a problem with that. He's like, well, you have a problem with that because you're working with me. But he said, I have a problem with that. See, for, for some people, the only way they can get peace and strength is not thinking. For those people to not think it out to its logical conclusion helps them have peace and strength. But for the believer, to think deeply about the manna of the Bible is actually the thing that gives us peace and strength. So when you're in the wilderness, 
grab this thing, gather manna, and think deeply about it because it's every word that comes out of the mouth of the Lord is the manna that God has given us. And that was the point of Exodus 16. Be in the manna. Because when you're in the manna, the deepest, darkest shadows, the greatest evils of this world are going to pass someday. Because you know that there's hope. So this thoughtful strength, it's also relational strength. Go back to the text in Exodus 16 and notice what it says. It says here, every day, basically, they would get up, verse 21 tells us, morning by morning they gathered it, each as much as he could eat. The sun grew hot and melted. So morning by morning they would get up. Every day they were commanded to get up and do this. Why every day? Why couldn't God bring it like once a week, like a food delivery truck, like back up, here's manna for the week, we're good to go. Why every day? Because it's about a relationship. Why do we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. Because most of us would like to pray something more like this. God, give me this year everything I need for this year. I pray things like that, right? God, give me everything I need to move to Scotland and maybe just one guy could write a check. That'd be great. And that could be, I've dreamed this before. I've thought, man, wouldn't it be great if somebody would just write a check to Refuge Scotland for a million dollars and then we could just pay everybody and we could move all of you over there and we could just have a church from day one. Like, God, you're big enough to do that. And God says something to me that I don't want. I'm also big enough to reach you So big enough to teach you through day one. Day two. Day three. Because see, we're really good sometimes. I'm really good. Trusting God with the big stuff. Right? The big, the big stuff. The, the vision to move somewhere. The vision to take that mission trip. And it's like, we believe God for these big things. To bring our daughter home. To provide... $25,000 to adopt a child and all that. We're good at trusting God for the big stuff. Can I tell you where I really struggle? Just to be really transparent with you. You can ask my wife. She'll validate this all day long. I struggle with this. So we can bless God for the big things. And your car breaks down. You freak out. Because you don't know how you're going to You just trusted God for salvation and you're freaking out over an engine. Does anybody else have a problem with that? So that's what he's doing here. He's saying, day by day, come to me, because this is a moment-by-moment relationship where every morning you get up and come and get this manna from the Lord. It wasn't about the manna. It was about thoughtful knowledge, but it's also a thoughtful strength, but it's also about relational strength. And so he brings them back every day. So it's like this. If I'm driving and I get lost, I think I get lost really easily. I get lost. If I'm driving and I get lost, and I've got a GPS if I get lost, I can stop and ask somebody for directions. I'm a guy, so I probably wouldn't do that, but I could. So Ben Hewitt, um, Daniel Duncan, some of you know him, he's my brother-in-law, and myself, and Rachel Horta was living in Israel at the time. We went to Israel in September 2008, and we were kind of there on kind of a vision trip just to kind of see like what we could do in ministry there. And we drove up to a city called Netanya. We rented a car and drove from Jerusalem to Netanya. Beautiful drive. It's an amazing drive. I'm like, I'm driving through Israel. This is crazy right now. So we get to Netanya, and we're going to sleep on the beach that night. We got there, and 
and we were going to get a hostel, and they said, don't get a hostel, you can sleep on the beach. I was like, is that safe? She's like, oh yeah, there's a bunch of Arabs that sleep on the beach. I was like, is that safe? So we go out there and we slept on the beach. I've had, I haven't had a, a better night's sleep since I slept on the beach on the Mediterranean Sea. We didn't have any, we didn't have any tents. We, we just had blankets and beach, and it was great. But we're trying to get to the beach, and we didn't really know where the beach was. And I realized, I think I know why the Israelites were wandering around so long, because there wasn't a Jewish person in that city that could tell me where the beach was. So I kept asking, and I stopped at this one lady, and she said, oh, the beach is up there. And she kept, she gave me all these intricate directions, and I remember this very vividly. And I just remember looking at Ben like, we're never going to find the beach. The best way to do this is for her to get in the car and drive us to the beach. Because when you're lost, abstract information is not what you need. You need relationship. So I'm in Glasgow last February. I get dropped off at the middle of downtown. I'm supposed to meet this guy at Central Station. I have zero clue where Central Station is. I thought it's where Queen Street Station was. In Glasgow, there's two massive train stations. One, one is Queen Street Station, one is Central Station. And they all pretty much funnel all the trains coming to those two places. And they're on two opposite ends of what's called the city center. So I'm walking, and I was with great confidence. Because, you know, you kind of get prideful when you're new at a place. And you think, oh, I know this. So I'm walking. I'm like, City. I'm, not, I'm basically a class region. So I'm walking to Queen Street Station, and I call the guy, and I'm like, I'm here. And he's like, where are you at? And I'm like, he, I was like, where are you at? He's like, I'm at the Burger King. They do have Burger King there. And, and I was like, well, there's no Burger King here. He's like, oh, that's probably, you're probably at the Queen Street Station. You need to come to the Central Station. That's where I'm at. And I was like, oh. And I tried to act real cool on the phone. I was like, okay, man, I'll see you there in a minute. He's like, I don't know this is. So I hang up, and I'm walking, and I'm like, just like, I just come to this place where I realize I'm lost. So I stop this guy. I say, hey, can you, can you tell me where the city station is? He's like, oh, yeah, mate. Uh, so basically, you go down here, and you can turn here, and you turn here, and you go down here, and you go down here. And I'm just looking at him. He can see this looking at my face. And he says, you know what? I'll just walk away. So he takes a 20-minute walk. His name's Mark. He was a student at the University of Glasgow. He's studying engineering. He says he likes to go take walks to the city center on days like that day because it was a really nice day. He didn't mind taking the time to walk to the center station. I know nothing about the lady that gave me directions to Israel. I just knew how to get to the beach. I knew something about this guy because when you're lost, you don't need abstract information. You need relationship. So why does God get them up every day to come and get more manna? Because it's not about filling their stomachs. It's about the relationship. That they would know that he was the God who provides you don't really realize that God is all you need until you realize that he's all you got. So he wants to get them to this point to where he, they are realizing that they've got to get up every day and come back to God, and he's the one that's going to give them the manna. But God wants them to set up in the relationship. So it's relational strength. But then it's also communal strength. This man Look back here at the text, and here's what it says. It says, verse 17, The people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some less. When they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Moses said to them, Let no one leave any of it over until the morning. And if they left it over until the morning, it would grow old and moldy and it would stink. So what's happening here? Well, it sounds like God would just kind of miraculously like change the amount of stuff that they gathered, right? It's like, well, you gathered a whole lot, and you're really greedy, and you get back to your house and go, Wow, I don't have that much. That's not what was really happening. 
we would come together as a community. They would gather as a community. And then some people had really big hands, right? So they would gather a lot. I have really small hands. Like I have my daughter's hands are going to surpass the size of my hand by next year. So I wouldn't gather a lot of manna. But some guys, man, they could gather a lot of manna. So you're only supposed to gather as much manna as was in your household. So for me, I would gather enough manna for my wife and my two children. If I gathered more, it just proved my heart was greedy. And so what would happen? Well, they would come back and they would measure it out as an omer, which was a measurement. And whoever had more or had less, it says that nobody had more than they needed and nobody lacked. What does that mean? It means this. The community of Israel brought the manna together and they would measure it out. And if I had gathered more because I have big hands... Uh, then the guy who couldn't gather as much, or maybe he was weaker and he couldn't go out, I would give him my manna, and so everyone had manna. What does that mean? Manna brings us not only thoughtful strength relationships, which means this in the desert they needed one. Hear this. In the desert, they needed one another. Because this guy couldn't gather as much manna as this guy could. And so they needed one another. Can I just say this to you? What he's trying to say to us through this text is not only is it thoughtful strength and relational strength, there's this communal element that's being told here that they needed one another. And when you're in the wildernesses of our lives that we walk through, you need one another. You cannot think that you can walk through this by yourself. You can't. So that's why we do things like carry to the table groups, meta groups, Bible fellowship. Why? Because you need one another in the wilderness for strength and for nourishment. Because here's what's going to happen today. There's going to be a day where you're the person who loses the one. There's going to be the day where you're the one who loses the job. You can't pay your bills. There's going to be that day where you're the person who goes through great tragedy. And if you have isolated yourself from the community of faith, around and you will go, there's nobody here. And our tendency is to go, the church has dropped me. And they do sometimes. But sometimes what happens is we so isolate ourselves, we're not involved in the church. We're not in a church. We're not in a And I'm not saying those are the only mechanisms for that to happen. Get with a group of people and do life together. But some of you are just lazy. Like you're just communally lazy. Like you just don't want to take the time to get together. When you do get together, you talk about Christlessness expounding on nothingness. You're not feeding one another. You're just talking about the game. And so here's the reality is you can't do this alone. And so they would gather the manna and then they would dispense the manna. The community gathered the manna. The community dispensed the manna. So it's communal strength. But it's also this. It's positional strength. The manna communicates to us. Look at verse 22. On the sixth day, they gathered twice as much bread, two omers each. So they gathered as twice as much as they needed. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, he said to them, This is what the Lord has commanded. Tomorrow is the day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake, and boil what you will boil. And all that's left over lay aside to be kept till the morning. So they laid it aside and kept it till the morning, as Moses commanded them. They did not, and it did not stink, and there were no worms in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh, which is the Sabbath, there will be none. On the seventh day, some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. 
the Lord said to Moses, How long will you refuse to keep my commandments and my laws? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, on the sixth day, he gives you bread for two days. Remain each of you in this place. Let no one go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. So there is thoughtful strength. We have to take the manna and chew on it and eat it. There is relational strength. God wants us to come back to him daily and trust him daily. There is communal strength where we have to survive in the wilderness together. But there's this last thing, it's positional strength. Why do I call it positional? Because it's their position of who they are, their identity as God's people. Now, in Egypt, they were Pharaoh-centered. Everything centered around Pharaoh. In your Egypt, you were Pharaoh-centered too. But your Pharaoh was whatever your main idol was. Because Pharaoh in Egypt had set himself up to be God. And so, in your personal kind of Egypt, you're Pharaoh-centered too. And you're probably the Pharaoh. Your life was probably centered around you. And so when you get delivered from sin, when you come out of Egypt, you go through this process. And this is what God is doing in the wilderness of keeping you from being Pharaoh-centered and moving you to being Yahweh-centered. So what did they do in Egypt? They cried out for deliverance from what? They were slaves. 24-7 they worked. What did they do? They made bricks. They made bricks that built houses for Pharaoh and built temples for Pharaoh and built temples for pagan worship. And here's where their identity come, came in Egypt. Here's their identity. They were not the people of God. They were the people who were the slaves of Pharaoh. And they were identified by how many bricks they could make. Their identity was based on what they did. Make bricks. Make bricks. Make bricks. For some of you, your identity tonight is wrapped up God give us The manna is thoughtful strength, it's relational strength, it's communal strength, but it's also positional. He wants to teach them with the manna a lesson. You are not Pharaohs anymore. You are my people. So what does he tell them to do? He says, on the sixth day, gather twice as much manna, because on the seventh day, it's not going to be there. He, they didn't believe him. So what do they do? They go out, they look for the, the manna, it's not there, and then Moses said, see, when will you keep the commandments? Why do you refuse to keep the commandments and the laws of the Lord? And so basically, they were to realize that they are not what they do. They are whose they belong to. So Sabbath was this day where they rested. It was this day where they did the work. Because they're no longer favorites. No longer defined by what they did. So you give them enough on the sixth day so that on the seventh day they could rest. And it says it's a day of what? It's a day of holy honor. It's a day of holy, solemn rest, holy Sabbath to the Lord. So, in our lives, here's a great question. Do we Sabbath? And here's what we know from Hebrews. Jesus is our Sabbath rest. So, by law, we don't have to keep a day of Sabbath in the sense of the law. But here's the question. The principle still stands. Is there a day where you just kind of check out and you are not what you do? You're not the grade you make. You're not the job you have. And you just kind of rest in the fact that you are a child of the living God. While I'm being honest, let me be honest about this. This is difficult. Because as a minister, there's not a lot of rest. And so there's times where I just have to kind of like put my laptop away, put my phone away, forget that this person called me and needs to see me and it's an emergency right now. Forget that I have to write a sermon for next week. Forget, I just have to stop and go, I'm not what I do. 
wanted to teach the Israelites that. Why? Because they want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. Some of you are sitting in here tonight, you want to go back to Egypt and be slaves again. You want to be defined by who you dating, who you were, your accomplishments, your dates, what you do, your ministry opportunities. You want to be defined by those things. Here's what he wants them to do. In Sabbath, they remember they are God. They're defined by that alone. So we see this process and this provision. The manna brings thoughtful strength. It brings relational strength. It brings communal strength. It brings positional strength. They are God's people, not Pharaoh's anymore. But here's kind of the last part of this that we've begun. We've seen the process of redemption, the provision of redemption, but here's the patience of redemption. This is great. Verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna, this bread. It was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded, that an omer of it be kept throughout your generation, so they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put an omer of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. To show people, basically, the Lord is not. Verse 34. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. People of Israel ate the manna forty years till they came to a habitable land. They ate the manna till they came to the border of the land of Canaan. So, this is interesting because in verse five, six, he says, "I've brought them here to test them." So, he tests them. They fail the test. By the way, how do we know they failed the test? Well, because they got up on Sabbath and they went to gather manna. They weren't trusting in the provision of God. They were trusting themselves because they're still Pharaoh-centered and not Yahweh-centered. So they get up. They fail the test. And here's what we see at the end. We see Israel fails the test. They're going to do it over and over again. And here we see God's response. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years so they came to have the land. So let me ask you this. What kind of test is it where I fail and you keep delivering? How many of you have tested lot of you. How many of you have tests next week? Okay. How many of you just have a lot of tests? Papers. Okay. How many of you, like, if you don't pass some of these tests or do well on them, it could dictate the rest of your college career? Raise your hand. Okay. Because for so many of you, and this is really what school here is all about, at least in the West, tests are given to qualify you or disqualify you. Sometimes professors will keep giving tests, 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 because they just want to disqualify, disqualify, disqualify. Some professors revel in the joy of disqualifying you. I had a math professor that walked in my class my sophomore year, and he was this really skinny guy. His pants were hiked up to here, and his glasses were down here, and he would always stick his tongue out when he talked to him. Like that. Weirdest guy. And he only talked to the girls. That was weird, too. But he came in, and he said, he was real country, and he said, 75% of you are going to fail this class. I was like, praise the Lord. I'm probably in that because I was bad at math. But our father's test, Father God, is not is not like a professor's test because a professor's test is to disqualify you. But the father's test is to purify the sanctify. So here's why you see they fail the test, and then he says, "Get up tomorrow morning and get more manna. Get up and get more because there's grace." So here's here's kind of a premise that we operate on. Some of us read the Bible to this premise as well. We operate off this premise that if I live right, my life will go right. 
even the best of us who have great theology, in our hearts operate by premise. If I live in a certain way, my life will go a certain way. God owes me something if I live in a certain way. Here's the problem with that. Every person in the Bible, Jesus, who lived in perfect holiness and he found the cross. The problem with that premise is that when I come to my wilderness, and you'll all come to a wilderness, it will either create in you a hate hatred of yourself because you go, I just can't measure up and so maybe God's brought me to this wilderness because I'm I'm just not good enough. Or it will create a hatred of God. Wilderness always creates either a hatred of yourself or a hatred of God. Because most of us operate with strengths. If I live right, my life will go right. How do you change that? has performed. Jesus has taken my sin. Jesus has passed the test. He went to the wilderness and he owned the test. So tomorrow morning I can praise. Because he's my father. Jesus said in John 6, he's talking
wilderness, and I'm the same way. Though we don't like the wilderness, and though it's dry, it's barren, God, we know that it's a place that you really speak to us. And so, Father, tonight I just want to pray for those who Every word that comes out of your mouth. 